2: Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta.
1: And welcome again to the Talking Biotech Podcast, where the weekly podcast where we discuss new innovations in both medicine and agriculture, especially as they relate to biotechnology, coming up with new innovations that can help people and help the planet. I'm Kevin Folta, and today we have a unique opportunity to talk to somebody who was there from the very beginning we go to Saskatoon, Canada to Dr. Maurice Maloney, the executive director and CEO of the Global Institute for Food Security. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Maloney. Thank you very much for the
2: invitation, Kevin.
1: Yeah, this is really great. I'm so excited that we have an opportunity to do this. It's been on the schedule for a very long time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about your background and your roots from kind of the beginning of many of the aspects of what we think of as modern biotechnology.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I I fell into the biotechnology revolution, Kevin, uh, in a rather serendipitous way. Um, I was uh, a postdoc in Switzerland at the time, expecting to go back to the UK for a faculty position. And uh, at that time, I would have been classified as a plant biochemist or a plant physiologist. Um, things weren't going so well in Britain at the time Uh, Mrs. Thatcher was closing down university departments and so I actually became part of what was known as the brain drain um, of uh, folks that moved across the Atlantic um, to to work in the United States and instead of going to a university I was uh, invited to visit Calgene in Davis, California which was one of the first um, plant biotechnology companies that have been set up so this is uh, in the early 80s and uh, i was so enamored by the ambition of this company and the vision they had i said that's what i want to do and so uh, i uh, instead of uh, moving to a university and becoming you know a more conventional academic i uh, ended up moving straight into the industry Having said that, you know the company itself was doing such groundbreaking research that it was it was research worthy of uh, you know any cutting edge uh, laboratory in the world.
1: And so you said this was a, about nineteen early nineteen eighties or so that you were there. Yeah, nineteen eighty two. And so, what were some of the hot ideas at the time that people were thinking about? And this, just for context, this is about when. At the same time that plant uh, regeneration and transform well, plant transformation and regeneration is being demonstrated in other laboratories. So, where was Calgene, and what were you up to, and what were some of the breakthroughs at that time? Right.
2: So the vision was was phenomenal. So the vision was improve photosynthesis in plants. Uh, Let's figure out a way of making plants much more economical, by the way, they use nutrients like nitrogen and um, potassium and so on. Um, so things that are still on the menu right now, um, but also let's uh, make plants um, much more resilient, maybe against diseases and so on, against insect pests and the like. So the vision was there. The big problem was at that point, when I moved to Calgene, nobody had actually introduced a gene into plants and demonstrated that they could make that gene function. So we were in basically a global competition uh, which involved some academic labs, um, the uh, University of Ghent in Belgium, uh, University of Washington in Seattle, um, and uh, companies like Monsanto, all of whom were focusing on ways in which Uh, we might be able to mobilize genes and put them into plants. And calgene was part of that mix. Calgene never did any work on what you might call model systems. It moved straight into crops. And as a result, it actually wasn't the first group uh, to make a transgenic plant, but we were amongst the first to make uh, transgenic
1: crops. And, and what was the first transgenic crop to come out of Calgene? Well, to I shouldn't say to come out of, to uh, be experimented with it, Calgene.
2: Yeah, so um, the, the two that we did very early on in this cycle were uh, transgenic canola, which was in my group, and also uh, transgenic tomatoes. And uh, uh, everybody, I think, now in the history of biotech knows about the uh, – the flavor savour tomato, that was actually the first product that was uh, approved by the FDA uh, that went through the transgenic uh, regulatory approval cycle. Um, we worked in my group on uh, brassica species, of which canola is the most important, um, because what we were interested in doing is modifying the, the biochemistry of the oils because uh, lipids, uh, plant lipids, are really a very important part of human diet, and there's lots of ways in which we knew we could improve those oils. So it was critical for us to find a mechanism by which we could uh, mobilize these genes into canola, because then that would open up the whole question of improving the quality of the oils that, that were uh, associated with that oil seed.
1: Oh, that that's really interesting because well, actually it's kind of funny. I was the first plant I transformed was canola too, and that was in maybe 1988 when I was working at Cargill of all places. But I was only working there as an intern, and it's where I learned I didn't want to work in a company. But um, I, I uh, at the time I didn't even know what canola was, but learned about it. Uh, and this is late 80s um, as having a very favorable oil profile lots of monounsaturated fats. So what what were you what would be an alternative to uh, to that inside the oil composition?
2: Yeah, so um, the first thing we were interested in is uh, um, looking at the chain length of the oils because uh, canola has been selected to have shorter chain length oils, C18 oils basically, which are very much uh, uh, olive oil like in their in their uh, general properties, um, but also then there was a lot of evidence for the benefits of polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, and that would be um, things like uh, lin, uh, linoleic acid particularly, um, while reducing uh, very heavily unsaturated fatty acids like linolenic acid, because linolenic acid oxidizes and can actually give a kind of fishy smell to vegetable oil. So you could improve shelf life and the health qualities of some of these oils in that way.
1: And a lot of our listenership may not be familiar with what exactly canola is. And could you give us a, just a few words on what it is and why it's important?
2: Yes. So canola is uh, the major oil seed in the brassica family. So it's connected very directly to the cabbage family and so on. Uh, We tend to think of brassicas as being vegetable crops or possibly root crops like uh, rutabagas and so on. But in fact, uh, uh, brassicas also provide uh, a very large bulk of vegetable oil for the world. Um, Brassica oils are particularly important uh, um, in Canada, where we have uh, almost 10 million hectares now, but they're also very important in uh, in india um, and uh, china uh, again major source of uh, good vegetable oil in china uh, is still brassicas so canola is is a brassica oil seed it's a particularly useful one because it's got very high percentage of oil in the seed we tend to think of soybean as being an oil seed but actually soybean only has about oil and soybean is really a protein seed that has oil in it whereas these uh, brassica crops are true oil seeds with uh, 40 to 44% by weight oil.
1: And were you doing any work with the uh, glyphosate tolerance or was that a different company's vision at the time?
2: No it was exactly uh, aligned because uh, while we were working on the development of um, the gene transfer systems for canola, uh, Luca Kamai and Dave Stalker, um, brilliant scientists uh, in uh, uh, in Calgene, were working on herbicide resistance strategies. And uh, they came up with uh, what was referred to as the ROA gene. It was a bacterial gene that enabled us, when we put it into plants, to get... Uh, Quite high levels of tolerance to glyphosate, which we quite liked, because of all the various herbicides on the market at the time, glyphosate is, from a toxicological point of view, by far and away the most benign uh, herbicide that's ever been invented. Um, you know, in 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 uh, terms of uh, its uh, its risk, it is about four times less toxic than common salt. So uh, you could eat glyphosate and basically break it down uh, into innocuous components. So we really liked that as a herbicide, but it it is a herbicide that uh, was capable of uh, arresting the growth of pretty much any green plant. And so what we needed to do is make the crop plant resistant. And uh, that's uh, through collaboration with uh, Luca and Dave, Luca Kamai and Dave Stalker, we were able to uh, make the first uh, herbicide-resistant canola plants.
1: Yeah, ironically, uh, the, that now in California, glyphosate is being uh, potentially labeled as a carcinogen. I don't know if you've heard that story.
2: Yeah, and, and that has actually come out of a um, what can only be described as a meta-analysis that was done um, by one of the United Nations uh, organizations Um, I think most serious toxicologists do not um, give it an awful lot of credence simply because it's not really based on any good experimental evidence. Um, The amount of toxicology work that's been done on uh, the active ingredient in glyphosate, which is phosphonomethylglycine, suggests that it is extremely benign and is broken down in the soil rapidly, and the major byproducts are glycine, an amino acid, and phosphate.
1: Yeah, pretty benign stuff. It's uh, yeah, I, I'm familiar with that discussion, and it's really disappointing. And luckily, we'll have somebody on the podcast in a few weeks who's going to really dig into the IARC um, decision and the literature that is supporting or not supporting of it so we'll have a good distillation of that in just a few weeks but what about other crops what about and i know that in your background you've worked on a variety of different projects and in a huge variety of different uh plants or well at least a series of different plants with a variety of different products what were some of the things that you've worked on and um maybe the rationale for them and where are they now (laughs) yeah
2: so uh, we continued uh From the work I did in in Calgene, um, we certainly developed a strong interest in uh, looking at the metabolism of oil seeds to see if you could actually make um, even more interesting, healthier oils. And uh, we did work subsequently on gamma-linolenic acid. Now, that took a little bit more um, metabolic engineering in order to... um, uh, Persuade a canola plant to make gamma-linolenic acid, um, and when you uh, you do that, uh, you produce something that's rather like an evening primrose oil, very uh, and, and, and uh, you know, very valuable oil is used as a nutrient, uh, a nutritional supplement primarily, um, but it's strong evidence that it does actually boost the immune system, um, and uh, oddly enough in. Uh, in companion animals like dogs, it's, uh, it's an essential ingredient in improving their, the quality of their fur and their coats. So it's got uses both in humans and in, uh, uh, in, in pets. Um, we also um, have focused our attention on something that's got both major nutritional value but major ecological value, and that is uh, finding substitutes for fish oils. Now, uh, I think these days everybody knows that fish oils are good for you. Not everybody knows quite why they are, but fish accumulate um, long-chain fatty acids, um, and those long-chain fatty acids are actually the major fatty acids found in brain. Um, so they are an essential component of the uh, mammalian brain, the human brain, and they have to be absorbed primarily um, through nutrition. We don't make enough in the human body to supply it all. Hence the importance of, uh, um, of finding natural sources of uh, these, these uh, oils. The problem with fish oils, is, of course, we have overfished uh, the uh, stocks of wild fish. And the sad truth is that although they're called fish oils, it's not a fish that made them. Fish eat them um, in the form of uh, eating krill um, and the krill uh, eating algae. There's a whole food chain there, but essentially these oils start out life in algae and end up in fish. That means if you run out of wild fish and you move to fish farming, although you can produce a perfectly viable looking fish, it doesn't have as much of these beneficial oils unless you've got some way of supplementing it. So we said, well, if it's an algae that makes the oils, then surely we should be able to mobilize the genes from algae into uh, crop plants. Because algae are plants. They just happen to be plants that live in the sea. Um, but we should be able to mobilize those genes and uh, and, and get crop plants to make these uh, uh, these highly valuable fish oils. If we could do it, then it takes an awful lot of pressure off uh, fishing for wild fish to get these fish oils, um, and it would enable us eventually to introduce uh, a vegetable-based fish oil into the diet of farmed fish, and therefore the fish would uh, would have a, uh, farmed fish would have exactly the same nu- nutrient properties as wild fish. Um, and it would take an awful lot of pressure of, uh, of uh, overfishing. So anyway that's now being done and uh, um, the uh, there's a, a few labs in the world that have succeeded in producing levels of these fish oils that are commercially viable. Um, the CSIRO where I used to work in uh, um, in Australia has done this and also, Uh, Rothamsted Research, where I was the director, uh, have also demonstrated you can make uh, commercially viable levels of these fish oils in plants. So we uh, we see this as a victory not only for nutrition, but actually for uh, the whole of the oceanic uh, ecology because we're going to disturb much less the food chains.
1: Are any of those... uh uh, fish, oil su- um, fish oils that you're supplementing with fish, can they be consumed directly by humans and get the same benefit?
2: Yes, they can. And they're actually on the markets already uh, in capsule form um, uh, being made in, uh, in yeast, in fermentation tanks. Now, that is too expensive uh, to use as you might call a general nutritional supplement. Um, you know that you might add to other food products like yogurts that kids eat and so on. But, um, but it, it, certainly from a proof of concept point of view, it already exists and uh, it is uh, possible to get these alternative sources of these oils. The main thing is to get them at a price now that is reasonable, that can be a proper substitute for fish oils.
1: Well, that's really good so far. Let's um, take a break here. And then when we come back on the other side, I'd like to just kind of have a conversation with you about your vision of where we're going. I know that, you know, you've been around the lots. You've worked at all the wonderful places on this planet, it seems. Um, Let's um, follow up then on the other side of the break at the Talking Biotech Podcast.
3: Greetings, Talking Biotech Aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that Talking Biotech Tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, And most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share
1: their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And so we're back at the Talking Biotech Podcast today with Dr. Maurice Maloney, Executive Director and CEO of Global Institute for Technology in Saskatoon, Canada. And we're talking about biotechnology from the past and the future and uh, skipping the present because it's not very much fun. <laughs> a lot of Roundup Ready crops and BT. Um, let's. Uh, so Dr. Maloney is, um, has been around for a long time in different companies. And his different uh, academic and other government institutions, and has seen a lot of what has happened in the past. So, looking forward, um, I guess, you know, what are some of your thoughts about the backlog that we currently are seeing in terms of good technology that's kind of stuck in limbo because of regulatory or other issues? Yeah,
2: it's a great point, Kevin, because uh, although I would say, still say the biotech revolution for farming has been amazingly productive. It's actually been amazingly productive with relatively few traits. Um, One of the traits that we haven't seen an awful lot of activity in is actually disease resistance. So we do have some pest resistance, things like BT for insect pests, but disease resistance, uh, there's phenomenal opportunities. And while there has been a lot of pushback uh, about biotech crops around the world, scientists have continued to move the basic discovery science forward so that now we do have some interesting uh, opportunities. I'll give you one because it's very close to my heart, Kevin, because I'm Irish. And uh, if there was ever uh, an example of uh, the effects of food insecurity in the modern world, uh, it's the Irish potato famine. And the Irish potato famine resulted in more than one million deaths in a period of about four or five years in Ireland, and also resulted in more than one million uh, exported people from Ireland, most of whom uh, went to the United Kingdom, uh, uh, sorry, uh, to the United States. And uh, the the dynamic of population change just because of a plant disease is still uh, vivid in the memory of, of, uh, of Ireland. Now, the disease that caused that, late blight, is caused by uh, um, a, um, a pathogen called Phytophthora infestans. And you would have thought in the intervening 150 years, we would have solved that problem. But in conventional breeding, we have never been able to solve that problem. Um However, biotechnologists have taken hold of this, and I refer particularly to work from Jonathan Jones's lab in the Sainsbury uh, lab in, uh, in the UK, where they have looked at wild potato relatives that show high levels of uh, resistance to uh, late blight. And the question was, could you actually cross these wild potato relatives with a modern potato that we use for French fries and baked potatoes uh, and make sure you get those resistance genes by basically by conventional breeding. The answer is yes, you could do it but it would take about 25 years for um, the reversion of the germplasm to settle down to become something very similar to our current uh, uh, commercial varieties. So how do you do it? Well, you do it by um, using genomics and using biotechnology. The genes for that resistance have been identified, and they've been mobilized in a single generation into modern potato cultivars, the ones that we use for making french fries and mashed potatoes. And lo and behold, within two years of field trials, uh, Jonathan Jones and his team were able to demonstrate high levels of of tolerance to uh, this pathogen that's been plaguing us now for well over 150 years. So, um, at the moment, if you tried to get that through the regulatory system in Europe, it would still be very difficult. But it's a wonderful example of what biotechnology can do, because even when it's possible to do something by conventional breeding, The time involved is so long uh, that you may as well just go to the end result by a more rapid route. And the more rapid route here is what we would now call a biotechnology crop or a transgenic crop. So there are fantastic examples like that that have become available. Um, And uh, I think disease resistance uh, is going to be a major um, trait that we begin to introduce into uh, important staples. Um, there's another thing below ground that we also have technology to address but has never been incorporated into commercial crops yet, and that's nematode resistance. Um, nematodes in some parts of the world can actually account for 40% losses in our crops. Well, you know, if uh, we could make roots resistant to some of these uh, these pests that we never even see because they're microscopic and below ground, it will make a, an absolutely um, dramatic difference, and not only to high, you know, modern, high production agriculture, but actually will solve food security problems for impoverished people around the world.
1: Yeah, and I think when you, going back to the uh, late blight and, and the potato, the, idea that even you could breed it in 25 years. I mean, I think that's really generous. Um, you know, dealing with uh, cultivated potatoes are, are tetraploid. And uh, and so I think the idea of being able to take a potato gene and move it from one potato to a different potato, it, it seems like such a no-brainer to me. And when you talk to um, folks in, in the potato industry or other industries Let's just say, you know, in citrus or with strawberry, whatever. You can say we can solve your disease problems with a transgene by bringing in a gene, maybe from the same species, but just turning it on all the time. But, you know, insecticides are, or well, fungicides are cheap, nematicides are cheap and they work. And so it costs a lot less to use these ex- uh, compounds that we'd rather not use, that we'd rather not introduce to the environment. It costs less to do that than to go through the regulatory hurdles of deregulation. So, is it, you know? So, what's wrong with using this improved technology?
2: Yeah, because the foundation of, of the whole whole of biotechnology uh, in crops that we talked about earlier in, in the earlier segment, Kevin, uh, was basically let's see if we can produce crops that protect themselves rather than having to use chemicals. Because we all knew that uh, no matter how good uh, the agricultural chemicals are, um, first of all, there will always be suspicion about residues and stuff like this. But secondly, the pathogens and pests uh, mutate and become resistant to them eventually. And so we were always interested from the very beginning in um, introducing biological means into the plant by which it can protect itself. And then we're free from using chemicals that eventually will become obsolete due to resistance problems. So I think uh, that's the direction uh, all of agriculture is going to go. It reduces the input cost for farmers enormously. It actually reduces the risk to farmers because, particularly insecticides, probably the, the, uh, the group that farmers like the least when they have to spray. Um, If you can substitute those, as we have done with BT, there's an enormous reduction in the use of those chemicals and an actual improvement in the overall farm ecology because you're not hitting uh, non-target pests.
1: Exactly. Now, it's a a really good distillation. Now, you talked about, you know, maybe your favorite one with the uh, potato with the phytophthora infestans resistance. But when you but what other traits are you aware of in the pipeline that maybe are uh, maybe the most interesting? Maybe that cover a niche of humanity or a niche problem. Um, what do, what do you think there? Well, you know,
2: I mean, one of the ticking time bombs um, is. Uh, everybody's favorite fruit, and that is uh, bananas. Um, you know, bananas are popular throughout the developed and the developing world, and probably most consumers of bananas are not cognizant of the fact that bananas uh, basically do not represent uh, a great diversity of germplasm, so a great diversity of genetics, essentially. Now, that's a problem when a a, uh, disease crops up. And if you have a particular disease and you've got a relatively narrow genetic base for your crop, uh, it could wipe out the whole crop. And so um, with with bananas, uh, which are propagated uh, not by seed normally, but actually done vegetatively by cuttings, uh, which is the way we propagate a lot of our houseplants, Uh, Bananas are uh, high risk. The only way to solve that problem in any kind of timely manner will be to mobilize disease-resistance genes that are isolated from um, close relatives to bananas. And uh, if we want to do that in a timely manner, that's the approach we're going to have to take. Um, Otherwise, uh, we're going to see... you know, in, in one year, whether it could be next year, it could be the year after. Just a massive uh, reduction in yields because of uh, uh, fungal and actually viral diseases.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, the important part there is that, you know, we, you and I can talk about, you know, no banana for our banana split, you know, and, you know, woe is me. But there's a huge number of people on the planet where the banana is the central carbohydrate in their diet and a daily uh, staple.
2: You bet. I mean, you tell people of Uganda you won't have any bananas this year. That translates to them as being a starvation situation.
1: Yeah, and for uh, people who would like to know more about the banana situation, check out uh, episode twenty-nine of the podcast series. We had a discussion with Lena Tripathi, and uh, she's at uh, Itra in um, over in uh, Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya, and actually gave a really nice discussion of the different banana diseases and some of their potential biotech cures. And uh, so that's one that we have in the bank. You and I had discussed um, some of the ways in which biotechnology could help mediate the effects of climate change. And what are some of the ideas in the pipeline there that that you're aware of? Uh,
2: Also a great point, because uh, agriculture, unfortunately, um, is often portrayed in the climate change debate as a problem when, in fact, it is one of our major uh, um, opportunities for solutions. It's not just a question of making crops that are resilient to climate change, but actually photosynthesis, the main thing that crops do, uh, absorbs massive amounts of CO2 around the world. And uh, as a result, plants can be a net sink for the very... Uh, gas that we want to reduce in the atmosphere. Now there are some really interesting approaches to this and some of those approaches are almost invisible to us because they happen below ground. Um, Work that's gone on uh, both uh, with uh, rangeland breeders uh, looking for deep-rooting grasses and also um, in crops like uh, wheat Um, People like Michelle Watt, uh, formerly from uh, uh, CSIRO in Australia, looking for drought resistance in wheat. Turns out the best cases are ones that are very deep-rooting, high-rooting biomass. But when a plant does that, when it produces a lot of roots, not only does it protect itself against uh, drought, but it's actually sequestering large amounts of carbon. And it's been calculated uh, by Douglas Kell, uh, former uh, chief executive of the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council in the UK, that about 160 million hectares of um, deep-rooting grasses would actually absorb all of the industrial carbon produced on Earth. So, in other words, the maths aren't completely out of whack uh, by an order of magnitude. It is actually feasible. The plants uh, selected for this high biomass accumulation, particularly below ground, could actually be part of our solution to uh, to reducing CO two in the atmosphere.
1: And yeah, that's really it. Opens up another discussion too. That when you have plants that can sequester large amounts of carbon uh, in whether it's going to be biomass or you know cellulosic accumulation or whether we're talking about say oil it opens up so many opportunities for renewable fuels and i've been really i saw a thing last week about biodiesel and was just blown away by how much they can produce while making soybean meal for animals to eat the oil is basically a byproduct and we really could be doing a lot more to generate uh, renewable fuels based upon plants as that intermediate.
2: Absolutely, um, the you know the reason why we haven't done it, of course, is there is always a bit of a competition for land space between uh, food and uh, and non-food uh, plants. But of course, uh, the other issue which we've got to grips with more recently now is this whole question of photosynthetic efficiency. And there's been such breakthroughs in the last two or three years by major labs in the world um, working on photosynthet- uh, photosynthetic efficiency that it's now conceivable to, to grow a lot of the, what you might call, biomass crops for, um, for biofuels on more marginal land. And if they did have the improved photosynthetic efficiency, which seems to be promised by this next generation of technology coming out of the University of Illinois, Oxford University, Cambridge, and so on, um, we would be in a position to devote a substantial amount of non-agricultural land to producing biofuels, and therefore uh, not only sequestering carbon and making a virtuous cycle out of this, but of course... uh, reducing the amount of fossil fuels that we use.
1: And along that line, if there was a, you know, if I gave you the secret powers to change or let's just say approve one product that you either know in the pipeline or something you could dream up, what do you think the most important place we could use that transgenic approach might be today?
2: Uh, I think uh, basically opening the gates on disease resistance as the next, generation of biotechnology products um, would be um, a very important step forward. There are quite a few that are in the stables of companies and, in fact, university and institute laboratories. If some of those could get through a regulatory cycle um, that was not prohibitive, but was actually uh, um, you know, enabling these things to get to market fairly rapidly, then we would see a, a great shift in the way we do our agriculture because we would almost be getting to the point between insect resistance and disease resistance of reducing the chemical dependency that we have for, uh, for high production crops. Um, I think the consumer would be ecstatic about uh, seeing those things uh, come to reality.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a great place to start. And Would you be uh, willing to venture a prediction on what will happen with regulation of gene editing, like uh, CRISPR-Cas9, talons, that kind of thing?
2: Well, of course, I'd be very encouraged to see um, both how the North American agencies, uh, USDA... And the CFIA in Canada have handled these things. And uh, as a result, um, they are not really treated any differently from conventional mutagenesis breeding, uh, which is basically a a standard part of all plant breeding these days. Uh, Even if you grow organic crops, you're still using germplasm that underwent mutagenesis breeding. Um, In Europe, it's still going to be a bit of a knife edge, but I do believe that there's a whole generation of anti-biotech people in the European Commission that are basically reaching retirement age. There's a lot more young people that have entered into the uh, regulatory scene um, in the European Commission who are looking at these things from a very different point of view. And they recognize the environmental benefits as well as the crop pro- productivity benefits. And with something as easy to do as genome editing, where you can get some quick wins with very little um, um, uh, expenditure uh, in terms of uh, further research, I think, uh, I think I'm more hopeful than I've ever been. Um, but really, it does require that turnover, just like it does in, in the scientific world. Every 25 years, a lot of people retire. And surprise, surprise, some of the hypotheses that were not so popular um, become uh, more prevalent, uh, canonical pieces of science. <laughs> I think that's going to happen in Europe uh, with respect to um, genomics, and biotechnology, and it will probably be through the simplicity of genome
1: editing. Yeah, I, I, I agree, and I think that one of the other drivers that we is kind of a wild card is going to be the tremendous investment that's being made in places like China, the um, ambitions of folks on the continent in Africa, that there are so many pockets of innovation that where governments have said, we want this and we're going to make it happen. And I think that's, um, no one's going to wait for us anymore. And I think that that may be a very important impetus as we try to feed 10 billion people by 2050. Well, one of the central problems that we consistently hear of is how do we deal with food security issues as we have increasing populations, less water, limited space, How can biotechnology really help feed those 10 billion people by 2050? Yeah, this is really
2: important, Kevin, because whether we like it or not, we're heading for a crisis and we will have to address it. Now, everybody worries about climate change, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to worry about. But actually, the population dynamics between now and 2050 are formidable. And they're formidable in two ways. Um, we do have um, a very large um, purchasing power coming out of increasing populations in Asia that are going to demand high-quality food from our farming systems between now and 2050. And there's also a disenfranchised roughly one billion people around the world that still live a subsistence lifestyle. So they're lucky, lucky to have enough calories per day to keep them alive. Two different uh, uh, realities, and we've got to address both realities uh, if we're going to avert uh, crises and disasters between now and it peaking out at roughly 9.6 to 10 billion people in 2050. When you think how close 2050 is, we actually don't have the luxury of using what you might call conventional technology, which is quite slow. It gets there eventually, but it won't get there fast enough to feed all of these people. So we are going to have to have a step change in the rate at which we find ways of increasing our crop yields and our nutritional quality. And if we don't do that, we will have uh, international crises that we'll all regret and we'll all wish that we have mobilized the knowledge that we currently have to solve those problems.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Maloney. It was a really, uh, really great discussion. I'm really glad that you were able to join us and really impart from your experience in the past and share some of your visions for the future. Uh, If people want to learn more about you or your organization, where would they look online?
2: So uh, we've got a a website which is... uh, gifs.ca the dot .ca is Canada and the GIFS is the Global Institute for Food Security um, so that's probably the easiest way of tracking us down and then uh, we've got all our t- uh, technology, our personalities um, and all our contact numbers and uh, how, to, how to communicate with us there
1: all right, well, thank you so much for joining me. Stay warm in Saskatoon, and hopefully, we'll see you pretty soon.
2: Thanks a lot, Kevin. and really great to talk with you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com.
3: Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app, C O L A B R A. app.